I'm just going to say it now because I'm going to have to say it later. Uh, it's good to have some family up in here. Uh, my two sisters are visiting us this weekend, so it's good to see them. Although, what's up with Shell Bell? Oh, man. Come on, <laughs> sisters. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so it is good to have my sisters here. And in light of that, I thought I would open up with a little family reminiscing, if you don't mind, um, as we dive into today's message. Um, growing up, we spent, I would say, at least half, if not more, of our Christmases up in the cold, wintry north of Upper Peninsula, Michigan, um, where the snow banks were extremely high, although I noticed as I went back as I got older, they didn't seem as high, and I don't know if that was because there was less snow or I was taller, but the snow banks were huge, and it was loved going up to Grandma and Grandpa's house for Christmas. What was interesting, though, is that maybe two of my favorite memories up there don't come from Christmas time. I can only remember two times before I was like maybe 30 that we actually were up visiting Grandma and Grandpa in the summertime. And it was fantastic because we got to do stuff outside where you didn't freeze your tail off and 10 seconds because it was cold and snowy and you just go oh my goodness it was awesome but it was cold but so we went in the summertime and i'll never forget um being able to walk up this part of michigan has what they call bluffs not mountains not hills but bluffs um and they're they're kind of these big stone gatherings of stuff and they they just kind of come up right out of the ground and they're kind of fun to climb on and we got to go climb on this once when I was little, and then once not so long ago, maybe 10 years or 15 years ago now, time goes fast. So it doesn't seem like that long ago. Some of you are thinking, well, that's how long I've been alive. <laughs> well, it happens. Anyway, we, when you get up to this bluff, you could see the whole town of Besmer. You could look out on this place and pan around and see everything. I remember there was a big, giant, like, ski jump hill, the big kind where you go real fast and fly super far. Um, There was a training spot for that. You'd look around and see all of these things. And maybe my two favorite memories from Besmer, Michigan, come up on that hill. One was just 4th of July. It was a good time. The other time was with our family gathered for our grandfather's funeral. But those two moments on top of that bluff with family stand out as high points And as I think back and remember what went on in my life and think about my time in Besmer, Michigan, barely in the Upper Peninsula from Wisconsin, cold in the the winter, snowies all get out, lake effect snow. It was great. But some of my best memories come from that high place, that bluff overlooking the city where you could just look out and see. God operates in high places as well. And oftentimes in Scripture, we find special things happening in high places. Last week, we looked at grace in the garden. We looked at the tree of life and God's grace as it was seen uh, working for us and through us in the Garden of Eden through the tree of life. Today, we're going to kind of keep on a similar theme. I am going to let the trees go. Uh, so we're going to let the trees go. However, a lot of times trees and high places go together. So anyway, 
that's what we're going to spend some time looking at today. Grace on the mountain. Who do you say I am? Jesus, walking with his disciples, asked them that. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Who do you say Jesus is? I invite you, if you have a Bible or an app or just want to look up at the screen, to open your Bibles to the book of Mark. We're going to spend some time today in the book of Mark, and then we're going to go to the book of First Chronicles. I feel like an accomplished preacher when I want to preach from the book of Chronicles. I'm just going to say that right now. Um, but we're going to start off in Mark. Mark chapter... Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to spend some time today. Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, in verse 35, there it is. The Bible says this, Mark writing talks about Jesus and says, Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. And we're going to stop right there and kind of unpack that. Jesus here is a part of this, in the book of Mark, is a part of a temple story, a teaching in the temple part of Mark, where he spent some time talking to the people in the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, and just the general people there teaching and talking with them. It goes all the way back and starts in Mark Chapter 11, verse 27, is where this kind of temple scene begins. Um, Jesus is being asked questions. Two of the most common questions. The only things that are certain in life, death and taxes. It's true back then. They had the same questions, wanting to know about death and taxes. And so Jesus answers questions about death to the Sadducees who think there isn't a resurrection and are trying to, trying to figure out what happens when a husband essentially our wife marries a group of brothers and has no children whose wife will she be in heaven and it's kind of this convoluted thing you can read that for yourself but jesus is there answering questions on that who do you pay taxes to jesus is there teaching them about that in this moment and mark makes the point after all of this time to just kind of reiterate a couple things the first thing that he just kind of slips in there is while he taught in the temple. Now, I believe that there is a reason that Mark would have done this, that Mark kind of inserted this little caveat because this whole section has been here, but why at this point it's not the last thing that Jesus does in the temple, so it's not like a bookend, but Jesus is there teaching in the temple, and Mark points it out in this verse. While he taught in the temple. Remember, the temple was built up on top of a hill there in the Kidron Valley. It comes up next to Mount Olives. And you've got this, this mountain that comes up, Mount Moriah, as it was called throughout the Old Testament, in the Temple Mount. And so up on this high place in Jerusalem, up on the Temple Mount, in the temple, Jesus is teaching his disciples and the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all of those people. So while he taught in the temple, in that spot, on that hill, Jesus was teaching. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. The second thing they look at is, he points out, the Christ is the son of David. 
the titles of Jesus are many. Today we've talked about the names of Jesus. We've sung songs talking about the name of Jesus. And Jesus had lots of names that he liked and some that he tolerated. And this title of Son of David is one that he tolerated because it's, it's used a lot and he's, he never tells people, don't call me that, don't say that I'm the Son of David. But what, what is the connotation of the Son of David? It, it insinuates this idea of Jesus being a part of the line of kings that goes all the way back to King David himself, that goes back and is, is part of this person that they're looking for. Remember, they are looking for a Messiah, somebody to come from the line of David. And so as they are looking at Jesus, as they spend time getting to know who Jesus is, they attach this name in hopes that he will be the conquering king that he will come and conquer in the line of David, in the line of rulers. He will come and reunite Israel. He will come and bring Israel back together, and he will separate Israel out from the Romans. He will come and conquer as their king and bring back the great sovereign nation of Israel, bring back this, this time that he will come and conquer. And so in that subtle name of Jesus there, the son of David, is all this kind of connotation of what that means. So Jesus answers his own question. I find it interesting that it also says that he answered when nobody asked him a question. Um, I like how Jesus can answer questions that we don't have to ask. And in this text, he certainly did. Nobody asked him a question about this. But they just said, but Jesus asked, answered it anyway. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Verse 36, he gives his answer. Verse 36, it says, For David himself, by the Holy Spirit. This is what he said. I left out the word said, and it's just not, I can't even go on because I need the verb there. So let me try that again. David himself said, By the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So this is an interesting part of scripture. And did I go too far? I think I went too many. This is the slide I was meant to be on. Sorry about that. So anyway, it said the same thing. Um, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Um, What I love about this that I've been kind of enjoying more and more is the idea of looking at how the Psalms are quoted in Scripture. And if I were to ask you which Psalm or which Old Testament text was quoted from the most in the New Testament, you might now say Psalm 110, and you would be right. Over 33 times, I believe, Psalm 110 is quoted by people in the New Testament writing about the Old Testament. And so we want to go back to Psalm and look at it. We want to get the the context of this Psalm. So Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." The Lord shall send a rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. 
and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to kind of focus on these first four verses of Psalm 110. The last four verses kind of begin to have this application that we wouldn't quite understand without making some things clear first. Um, But we want to talk about this. First off, this psalm is prophetic. A lot of psalms have dual applications to David or somebody else and can be applied to Jesus. This psalm here is prophetic. It is a prophecy of David that was written by David referring to Jesus and this moment in his messiahship, his his ministry on earth. David is prophesying years and years, hundreds, if not a thousand years before, is prophesying of what Christ is going to do. The reason that we can know this isn't about David is because in the history of Israel, because God set it up this way, there was never any time ever that there was a king who also functioned as a priest. If you think back to the story of Saul and what got Saul in trouble, what got Saul in the most trouble is when he was waiting for Samuel and went ahead and offered a sacrifice in the place of Samuel as priest. And that is pretty much what started Saul's decline when he made that mistake. And it's what got him in trouble and he responded to it poorly and all of that. So in Israel's history, there was never ever a king who was also a priest. At times, kings may have done priestly type things, but they never truly acted as a priest. So in this prophecy, when we see this idea of there being a king who is also a priest, we can look at it and know that it's not talking about an Israelite. We can look and see that it's talking about somebody else. So as we look at this, we see that. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is the idea of being kingship. Remember, as Christ goes back, he talks about sitting down at the right hand of God at this, this idea of being on the right hand symbolizes power. It symbolizes kingship. It symbolizes these things. And so that, that statement right there points to Jesus being a king. So this is the idea of this conquering Messiah who's coming to make the enemies a footstool. Man, I don't know how many enemies I've had in my life. I can think of a few. Uh, but... Not a lot, but man, I just can't imagine sitting down and making them your footstool. And I would so love to sit down and do that, but then I'd have to get back up. And I don't want to do that. So they, this idea of making their enemies a footstool. Just think, this is the idea of a conquering king. But this is, this is the problem with this idea, that they were missing out who Jesus was. Because remember, today we're looking at, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus? And so they had half the picture, and they were looking for this conquering king. The Messiah had become involved in political... Ooh, had become involved in political and nationalistic hopes and dreams. The Messiah, the idea of the Messiah, had become involved, had become seen as to the Israelites 
a political and nationalistic figure that gave hopes and dreams, aims and ambitions to the Israelites. They were looking for a conquering, uh, militaristic king to come in and fight and to set them free. But they forgot about the rest of the prophecy. You see, they only saw half of the picture of Jesus. They only saw half of the picture of who the Messiah was supposed to be because he was also supposed to be priest. You see, what Jesus was trying to say in the temple that day to these scribes and Pharisees, he was trying to point out that he didn't come to to build an earthly kingdom. He didn't come to set establish a throne in Jerusalem. He came to bring men and women, his children. He came to bring them to understand who God was. You see, I think today that we sometimes only get half the picture of who Jesus is. Uh, I, I can think back to all the times of going to amusement parks. You get in the you get in the the roller coaster train or whatever it might be, and the last warning they give you is to keep your hands and feet inside the car at all times while it's moving. Well, friends, we need to keep our hands and feet because I don't want to step on any toes. But I fear sometimes that maybe we get the wrong picture of who Jesus is in our life. Do we not sometimes look to Jesus to come through a political or some sort of nationalistic motive? Do we not get caught up in hopes and dreams of what we think should be happening? Do we not get caught up in what we think Jesus should be doing and coming in and conquering and setting free and and all of these things that we do, do we not sometimes get wrapped up in this picture of Jesus? Keep your hands and feet inside your, inside your chairs. I don't want to step on any toes. Do we sometimes forget that Jesus came to be our king and our priest? The scribes, the people of Israel, had forgotten who Jesus was. They had forgotten that he had come to be a priest. To be a a priest, Uh, that would be a king and priest made into one. Uh, That that he had come to be a king and to be a priest. They had missed half the picture. They picked the pieces out that they liked the best. They picked what suited their desires the best. They picked these things out and said, here's my picture of Jesus and connected the dots and said, yes, this is who Jesus is. But they had missed the whole picture of Scripture. Who do you say I am? Who do we say Jesus is? So I want to follow this Temple Mount idea. So I told you to hang on to that. So following this Temple Mount idea, this place where Jesus is teaching, because remember, when Jesus mentions a psalm, I think, well, let me say it this way. When a gospel writer or a biblical author 
references in Old Testament scripture, I think we often have to go back and make sure we understand the context. Because if I say four score and seven years ago, all of you are, if you know what that is, but most of you I know are thinking of the Gettysburg Address of President Lincoln and some speech that maybe you had to memorize in English literature class um, or not, doesn't matter. It only had 273 words. I don't know why it was so difficult for me, but I didn't like it. But you think of that time there commemorating this battle that had happened in the fight for freedom and the fight for justice and Abraham Lincoln. All of that comes back in when I say the words four score and seven years ago. I have a dream. Martin Luther comes to mind in that whole speech that he gave there on in, in D.C., this beautiful speech and all that it represented. You think of these things. And oftentimes, I think when we see Old Testament scriptures quoted, we forget the context. And so when Jesus is there teaching and reminds them that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool, that the rest of it comes along too. The context is important. And there on the Temple Mount, Jesus is teaching that he has come to be priest and king. He's come to set them free from bondage that they don't really truly understand and to be the priest, the sacrifice for that purpose on that temple mount. I promised we would go to First Chronicles today, and that's where we're going to go to look at a story of David. An interesting story of David. D- David, as he's getting older in his life, there comes a moment in time where the kingdom is pretty much settled down and the Israelites are starting to feel pretty good in that moment. They have conquered uh, most of the, the Philistines and all of the people who have been attacking them. They have, they have done a good job at getting pretty established and stable. And so David decides to take a census. David decides and go, goes out to count his army. This is found in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If you want to turn there and join me, First Chronicles chapter 21, the whole chapter is about this one story. It's also found in Second Samuel 24. If you want to compare and contrast the two stories later, you can do that. But First Chronicles chapter 21 is where the story of the census goes. David is warned not to do it by some of his advisors, but he does it anyway. And when he goes out and does it, he begins to realize that he has made a mistake. In First Chronicles chapter 21, I'll be reading from verse 9. So D- David done, has done these things. He's made this mistake. He's realized he's made a mistake. The Lord comes through a prophet and tells him that he's made a mistake and gives him some options. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 21 Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Okay, this is some pretty serious serious stuff. David is given this 
this unique choice. You can have three years of famine, three months of being attacked and being chased and being overtaken by men. Or three days of the sword of the Lord attacking. Who do you say I am? Most of us look at this and would probably think that this is God being unfair. It's God being vengeful. But David knows who God is. David knows who God is. So what does he choose? Verse 13. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? For his mercies are good. No, no. His mercies are really nice. No, no, no. His mercies are very good. No. I like drawing it out. His mercies are very great. For his mercies are very great. This is David who knows who God is. Who does David say God is? Is he vengeful? David knows he's made a mistake and there will be a price. But he's like, throw me into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are very great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. David knows who God is. Who does he say he is? He said he is a merciful, loving, compassionate God. I can't help but think of the, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, that, that famous scene where, where Susie, or Susan, I think it is, uh, realizes that Aslan is a lion. He's like, a lion? Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. God is the king. He is good. His mercies are great. In fact, they're new every morning. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. God's grace. Hear me now. God's grace will always overcome. God's grace will always overshadow our sin. And even when there is punishment and things happen that we think it might be God's purpose, it might be God's purpose to come and destroy, because this is no light thing. 70,000 people lose their lives in this ordeal. And we may look and say, why did David's sin make 70,000 other people lose their lives? Well, let's be, let's be sure that Israel together had all come to the same conclusion and began to trust in their armies, had began to trust in their might. This was not just confined to David. But you would think God sounds vengeful for 70,000 people. But, God, but David knew that God was merciful. And the Bible tells us in verse 15 of this, that as he was destroying, this is the angel of the Lord, as he was destroying, the Lord looked, or the Lord saw. The Lord, became, the Lord was aware. He looked and recognized 
and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Oranan, the Jebusite. David knew who God was, and he knew the mercies. And even though 70,000 people perished, when the angel of the Lord got to the Jerusalem as he came to the city, the Bible describes how David saw the angel standing there at the city. And this is when God looks and relents from this destruction, says it is enough. David knew that mercy is God's purpose. David knew that mercy is God's purpose. Remember, God's grace is always enough to cover our sin. But I want to look at this unique connection that we could miss between 1 Chronicles and Psalms. The Lord looked and relented. If you remember from Psalm 110, it says that, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. It seems contradictory a little bit, but we need to remember this. We need to remember that God will not relent from his purpose. God will not relent from his original purpose. God will not relent from his salvation purpose. God will not relent from making a way where there was no way. God will not relent in his purpose of salvation. God did not come to condemn the world, John three seventeen says, but to save the world. So God will not relent from his salvation purposes, from his making a way purpose, from his bridging the gap purpose. He will not relent. But his mercies, his mercies are new. And God delights in relenting. God delights in grace. God delights in saving his people. God's grace always covers our sin. David's life here. David's life declares that sin, declares that shame and woe, that is what sin brings. But David's life shows that the love and mercy of Christ reach down to the deepest depths It reaches down to the deepest depths wherever you may think your rock bottom is. The love and mercy of God can reach down into that depth and by faith can bring you back up. God desires and never relents from his salvation purposes. Grace on the mountain. Here's this interesting connection point. You see Jesus, while teaching in the temple, teaching 
in that spot, that high place. Out of the story of David and the census gone wrong and this sin that he commits. Out of that story, as he goes to see Ornan, as he goes and buys a threshing floor, the Bible tells us that here shall be the house of the Lord God. And here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. You see this moment when God's grace and God's justice came together and the destruction stopped and David went and sacrificed a a sin offering and sacrificed on this threshing floor, it was there that they bought the spot for the temple. This high place. This, this vision of God's grace up on the mountain. This connecting point between Jesus teaching in the temple goes back to David and this repentance of sin and being meeting God's grace and mercy, lifting him up and buying the spot that will become that. It becomes a sacrifice, but it goes further than that. It goes back to the story of Abraham and Isaac climbing the hill where Abraham had been told by God to go sacrifice his son and they climb up the hill. Isaac's, Isaac's like, uh, we're, we're, we've got wood, we've got fire, where's the sacrifice? The Lord will provide, Abraham says. We've talked about this story before. They get up there on that spot where grace and mercy met again and Jesus provided a lamb for Abraham to sacrifice on Mount Moriah. This high place, this mountain, this temple mount had been a place in Geography had been a place on this earth where God had shown time and time again how he delights to save others, how he delights to save us. He does not relent from his purpose. He does not relent from his making a way where there was no way. So the question today, who do you say Jesus is? Am I so sure that I know who Jesus is that I would miss who Jesus is? Am I so sure that I know who Jesus is that I would miss who he is? Friends, the question today is, Who do you say Jesus is? Do we connect Jesus and pick the parts that we like that fit our narrative, that we pick the parts that fit what we think would be best, and we create this outline of who Jesus is, missing all the parts, missing who he really is? Do we make Jesus a man of our own construction? Friends, By the mercy and grace of Jesus, we can know who Jesus is. But also by his mercy and grace, we can allow who he is to come in and change who we think he is. I find myself asking over and over, why did the people who hung out with Jesus, why did so many of them seemingly miss the boat? I like to think that if he were to come again in the same fashion if I were to have lived back then, that I would have been one of the ones who recognized who Jesus was and said, this is 
the Messiah, the king and the priest. The priest who's going to come and offer a better sacrifice because it's his blood. A priest is going to come. I would like to think I would recognize that. But am I, but am I so sure that I know who Jesus is that I would miss who Jesus is? The Lord longs to meet with us in these high places. The Lord longs to meet with us and to show us his grace and mercy, that mercy that overcomes sin, that reaches down to that deepest depth. And by faith, lifts us up and calls us his sons and daughters. Friends, today Jesus is there to get to know. He's there for the taking. He's there and is longing to come into our lives. All of him. Today, let us allow the Spirit of God to come in and change who we think Jesus is that fits our picture, that fits our political purpose, that fits our view of salvation. May we allow Jesus to come in and change what we think so that when we meet Jesus, we can know who he is. Grace on that mountain. Grace on that mountain, on that high place, in those high places in your life. God longs to meet with you. Will you let him in today? I pray that you would. Father God, we just can't believe when we hear these stories, when we read these accounts of how rich and how deep your grace is in our lives. But God, may we let our ambitions, may we let our purposes disappear. May we let our purposes become aligned with you. May we let your spirit come down and fill us and begin to change us from within. But Lord, we also pray that as we have that spirit fill us, that it would flow out of us. So Lord, we thank you. We pray that we would hear your voice today. And we ask all of these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.